Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato, and I'm very excited to be here today. I've been looking forward to this day for a long time because now uh, at the Cato Institute, I'm finally able to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with who I think is the top health economist in the country, uh, MIT's Amy Finkelstein. Uh, I've been a big fan of Amy's for some time, and now she's given me an excuse to have that conversation with her. She and her uh, colleague, Laurent Anav of Stanford University, have published this book, We've Got You Covered. We're going to be discussing that book. I was excited to see this book come out because uh, Amy has been, and her colleagues have been doing what I think is the most uh, important work in health economics over the past 10, 15, or whatever years, maybe even 20. And, and that has inc included such hits as you've probably uh, heard of as the uh, Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, a randomized controlled trial of the, effe the effects that giving health insurance, specifically Medicaid coverage to low-income adults, had on their well-being and on health spending and other measures. But also uh, studies that uh, uh, ask really interesting questions that it seemed to me that very few people in the health economics essential questions that few in the health economics profession were asking, like what sort of impact has the Medicare program had on elderly mortality? Or how has uh, health insurance, ex uh, the expansion of health insurance over the latter half of the 20th century affected health spending? In these and many other studies, uh, Professor Finkelstein has uh, not only been asking the right questions, but coming up with really in innovative and imaginative uh, research designs that have enabled her and her colleagues to answer questions that I think that uh, others have not. So all throughout uh, uh, this, uh, uh, my, my, my Amy Finkelstein fanboydom, I've been wondering, uh, because in her empirical work, she is, uh, she's strictly a social scientist, where do her policy preferences lie? If, if Amy Finkelstein could reform the health sector, how would she do it? And I have to uh, admit, I was a little bit surprised when I read the book and found the answer. And we're going to be talking about, uh, about that today, because uh, what uh, uh, Professor Finkelstein and her uh, co-author, Professor Inav, propose is not what I would propose at all. It is instead, let me see if I'm getting all the adjectives right here, Amy. A, uh, automatic, universal, compulsory, taxpayer-financed, basic health insurance for everybody. Okay, so uh, the way this is going to go is, uh, uh, I'm very eager to have this conversation with Amy. First, we're gonna hear from her presenting uh, the main themes of the book. I'm gonna have some questions for her uh, about the book after that, and then we're gonna open it up to questions from uh, the audience, both in person and online. If, if you are joining us online, uh, then I believe uh, the way to ask questions is, well, it's right there on the Cato webpage where you're joining us online, okay. So, uh, oh no, it's right here on my in my notes. Online audiences may join the conversation and submit questions directly on the event webpage, Facebook, YouTube, and on X, formerly known as Twitter, using the, cast the hashtag CatoHealth. Okay, so with that, I'm gonna turn things over to Professor Finkelstein. Amy, thank you for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for that uh, overly generous introduction. I have to say at this point, I'm now kind of eager to skip my presentation and go to your questions because 
No, 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 you gotta save for your supper. As I was going to, as I will explain in the presentation, I actually would have thought this proposal would appeal to you, something we discuss a lot in the book, that although the notion of universal coverage is traditionally associated with left-wing progressives, it actually has a huge amount of intellectual support from uh, uh, proponents of small government and libertarians. So we'll get into all of that. Uh, let me just uh, give you guys a very brief overview of, of the argument of the book, and then we'll have a, have a discussion about it. Uh, this, this is, as Michael mentioned, is joint work with my long-term co-author, Laurent Inav. And as Michael also mentioned, um, you know, for the last 20 years, we've been working in U.S. health policy and health economics, but always from a very narrow, perhaps even esoteric academic perspective. Um, and we were sort of, as we describe in the prologue, goaded by my father-in-law being like, come on, but what's the solution? And I'd be like, well, it's hard, you know, I don't know, it's complicated um, to actually try and think about how could we provide a framework for the solution. And once we uh, started doing that, the answer to us at least was so both startlingly simple and so very different from anything we'd been working on or thinking about that we felt uh, compelled to write a book about it. So let me just give you a brief overview of the book. Uh, it's in three parts. The first is describing uh, the problems of the U.S. health insurance system, many but not all of which I think are familiar to people, and importantly, why we don't think further incremental patches of reforms will work. And then what we do is we take a step back and say, well, if we need to have a radical reform, or really any reform, it's important to ask, what is the goal of U.S. health policy? And that, I think, is sort of startlingly missing in, in many policy discussions. People argue about you know, the pros and cons of health savings accounts or single payer or Medicare for all or whatever the current, you know, uh, policy debate is about without ever articulating what is the purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? Uh, once we do that, to us at least, the solution was fairly straightforward. And so, uh, and I'll go through that briefly in the last part of the book and then turn it over to Michael to eviscerate me. Um, <laughs> All right, so uh, just, just to start, uh, we, we articulate three main problems with the U.S. health insurance system. The first, which I'm sure everyone is aware of, is the fact that even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which was supposed to enact universal coverage, uh, one in 10 Americans under 65 still lack health insurance. That's the, I think, one of the things that gets the most policy discussion, but one thing that we think is really important and that gets very little discussion is that a much larger share of Americans, we estimate one in four Americans under 65, uh, are going to spend some period of time uninsured over a two-year period. Uh, and that's not a trivial amount of time of a couple weeks while they're changing jobs. It, you know, for half of them, it'll be more than six months. For a quarter of them, it'll be more than two years. In other words, insurance, whose very purpose is to try to provide some modicum of stability or certainty in an uncertain world is perversely highly insecure and uncertain. Uh, for the half of Americans who have privately, who have uh, employer-provided health insurance, they can lose their coverage if they retire, if they change jobs, uh, if they lose their job, perhaps because of health problems. For the one in five Americans who have Medicaid, the public health insurance for low-income individuals, they can lose their coverage uh, either because, you know, their age or their disease status or their income changes, or everything stays the same and they're still eligible, but they've just failed to file the paperwork they have to file every year to show that they're still eligible. So that, to us, is the second big problem. And by the way, 
Although, as many people know, the Affordable Care Act cut in half the share of Americans without health insurance at a point in time, moving it from about one in five to one in 10, it basically didn't move the needle on this second number, the one in four Americans under 65 who will lose their health insurance or spend some time without health insurance over a, over a two-year period. And that's precisely why we started thinking about why we fundamentally have to rebuild from scratch, because the way our health insurance system has been created is a series of different policy patches that have come in at different points in time to cover a particular group with a particular income or age or disease status or, or situation. And whenever you have these sort of layers and layers on patches, you're going to have gaps in the seams where people fall through the coverage crack or uh, people uh, don't even realize which of those various patches are the way that they get uh, to be eligible for health insurance. A, I think, very sobering statistic is that of the one in 10 Americans who are uninsured at a point in time, six in 10 of them are actually eligible for free or heavily, heavily subsidized health insurance. They just don't have it because maybe they didn't realize they were eligible or they failed to, you know, file all the paperwork to get eligible, to get covered, or they, uh, you know, did that but then failed to recertify. So that to us is, is a huge problem. And then the third problem that I just want to quickly highlight is the issue of medical debt. Remember, health insurance is supposed to be a financial product protecting people economically uh, against uh, catastrophic medical expenses. And yet, not only is there an enormous amount of unpaid medical debt, um, researchers have estimated that, it's, that prior to the pandemic, it was about $140 billion in unpaid medical debt held by collection agencies, which to put that in perspective is as much as all the other consumer debt held by collection agencies for non-medical purposes combined. So it's really large. The really striking fact to me and Laurent, which we only realized in doing the calculations for this book, is that three-fifths of that medical debt is incurred by people who actually have health insurance at the time that they're uh, incurring the health care services. And yet, because of you know, the move to high deductible health insurance plans and employer-provided health insurance, the uncapped cost sharing in Medicare physician payments, even people who are fortunate enough to have coverage and maintain that coverage can find themselves facing crushing medical debts. So in all three of these ways, the system we think you know, pretty obviously is not functioning as it should. Um, we also discuss in the book how we got here, and I won't spend too much time on it, except to say that, as I mentioned earlier, um, our policy history or, was not you know, ever a, we're going to set out a coherent and carefully planned uh, blueprint and then implement it. Instead, it's been cobbled together as a series of patches as different individuals or uh, groups gained salience, their plight you know, caught a policy window, and the specific uh, policy was passed for them. And that's sort of how we have this Rube Goldberg machine of, of patches that punches you know, below its weight. I just want to give you two examples because these patches are not only the underline the problem, but I think they also tell us the first hint of what it is American health policy has been trying, if failing to do, for the last 50 to 70 years. And I think that's very important if we're going to think about how to reform it. So I'll just give you two quick examples. This is a cover from uh, Life magazine from 1962 that caused a huge outcry by revealing the existence of this secret committee of seven people in Seattle. There was a 
doctor, a housewife, a banker, different people on the committee who were charged, you know, with deciding who should live and who should die. What was the backstory to this? A hospital in Seattle had invented a life-saving technology uh, to, for people with end-stage renal failure. Uh, you know it now as dialysis. Uh, but they, it was extremely expensive, and they couldn't afford to just give it out for free to everyone. So a committee was formed to decide who should get this technology for free, this life-saving technology. And this prompted huge outcry to think that, you know, in 1962, here in the very United States of America, people were dying for lack of being able to afford a life-saving technology. Uh, caught the attention of a senator from Washington, one of whose childhood friend was on that wait list. Uh, prolonged lobbying campaign, including a dramatic moment in which uh, Advocates brought a patient uh, on a stretcher into a congressional committee and dialyzed him in front of the committee to dramatize the situation. And ultimately, in 1972, Congress responded by expanding Medicare coverage to also provide coverage for anyone with end-stage renal disease. Now, you might think, okay, why just end-stage renal disease and not also, you know, diabetes or, you know, lung cancer, but at least for these people, you know, now they're covered. Uh, not so fast. There are at least two problems with this uh, proposal or this, this policy. One is that you're only covered once you have end-stage renal disease. And this is true of many, many U.S. health insurance policies. We were shocked to realize there are separate programs for people with breast and cervical cancer, with tuberculosis, uh, with HIV, now with COVID, you know, with Lou Gehrig's disease, the list goes on and on. But of course, you have to be sufficiently sick to get coverage, so you won't have coverage for what could be uh, health care that could prevent you from advancing to an end stage. The even more bizarre point, and this is a feature of all of these different disease-specific coverage programs, is that if you're fortunate enough to get a kidney transplant, which is even better than dialysis for your long-term health, well, that's great for your health, but it's terrible for your health insurance because now you no longer have end-stage renal disease because you have now a functioning kidney and you lose your coverage despite the fact that you have to you know, spend tens of thousands of dollars on immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life. And, and there are many, many examples like this. Just to give one other, because again, I think it, it illustrates uh, what we've been trying to do. Uh, this is a picture of, of Ronald Reagan uh, hugging a disabled child named Katie Beckett Shortly after, you know, Reagan, who had been inaugurated in January, uh, famously declaring that government is not the solution, had within less than a year prompted his administration and Congress to find a governmental solution to Katie Beckett's problem. What was her problem? She was a disabled child who could get Medicaid coverage if she stayed in a uh, hospital or nursing home. But if her parents brought her home to care for at home, which is what they wanted to do, then in calculating her income, they would also count her parents' income and she would no longer be income eligible. So Reagan directed versus administration and then Congress to pass these Katie Beckett waivers, allowing low-income disabled children to be cared for at home uh, and still gain, have their Medicaid coverage. Also sounds like a nice policy. The problem, it only covered children. And at the time, children with Katie's type of disability tended not to live very long. Fortunately, there was a lot of medical technolo technological progress. Katie herself lived to age 34. But once she aged out of childhood, when she got her 18th birthday, she lost her insurance coverage that had been designed to cover children. So I, I think these examples, and we go through many in the book, sort of show 
you know, the futility of this incremental patching approach that always leaves gaps at the seam. But as we emphasize in the book, and the reason we spend a fair amount of time on these, is they also are, I think, the first part of the indication of what it is that these policies have been trying to accomplish. All of these are examples of somebody in a, you know, direly ill who cannot afford the medical care that they and their family want them to have. And what they reveal, we argue in the book, is an implicit social or empirical social contract that fundamentally uh, we, we are going to provide, we as a society and as taxpayers are going to provide access to essential medical care regardless of resources. Now that may seem like an odd uh, statement to make about the US, which is famously the only country, high income country without universal coverage. We also have a strong and proud tradition of independence, frontier spirit, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, et cetera. Uh, but as we argue in the book, um, this is, this is very clearly evident, not only in all those that history I just described to you, but even going very ba back to the very dawn of the Republic with the growth of hospitals, uh, which started in the early 19th century, primarily as a form of charitable care for people who were ill and destitute through what was considered no fault of their own, therefore shouldn't be put in the poorhouse, and instead charitable hospitals sprung up to take care of them if they didn't have family around, which was the primary form of medical care at the time, because as this quote from the book on, uh, by Charles Rosenberg on the history of hospitals says, fellow creatures could not be allowed to die in the street. And that is a, I, we were really glad to see that he had written this because that's how we had been talking about it and we felt we, we can't say that in the book, that basically our social contract is to not let people die in the street, but someone else said it, so that, that made it more convenient for us. Um, in modern times, you see this as well, uh, and we make the argument in the book that no one is actually uninsured for their medical care. What would it mean to be actually uninsured? It would mean that any medical care they got, they'd have to pay for. That's not what happens. Michael mentioned the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, which I helped run, which looked at what happened when some low-income uninsured adults were randomly given Medicaid coverage and some were not. And the result that I always thought I knew from that experiment was, well, when you randomly assign people Medicaid coverage, they use more care. They use about 25% more care. But if you just flip that on its head, the other way of saying that is those who remain uninsured are using about 80% of the medical care that they would use if they were insured. And now here's the kicker. If you look in the data, they're paying for very little of that care themselves. We estimate, and others have estimated as well, they're paying only about 20 cents on the dollar for that care. If they were actually uninsured, they'd be paying dollar for dollar for their care. Most tellingly, that other 80% isn't just, you know, private charity at all. It's publicly, it's public programs that are publicly regulated, publicly financed to step in to try to provide essential medical care regardless of resources when people become sufficiently ill. These are programs that fund hospitals, that fund primary care clinics, uh, that fund all kinds of prescription drugs, all kinds of care. Uh, so as again, we, we discuss this more in the book, but the fundamental argument, which hopefully if I haven't convinced you of now, I will, you will once you read the book, is that as a society, we have, we have decided that we will step in with taxpayer finance money to provide essential medical care when people are sufficiently ill and unable to afford it. You can like or not like that social contract. Um, 
I both am sympathetic to it and then also wonder how, how we define, you know, that we do this in the case of medical issues and not other issues. But what we take in the book is that you don't have to like it, it's just empirically what we do. And then we make the argument, which is not actually that novel an argument, it's been made throughout time and it's been embraced by people, as I was saying, across the political spectrum, that if fundamentally we are going to step in with taxpayer dollars to provide essential medical care regardless of resources, we might as well finance and fund that commitment upfront through universal basic coverage. And this is actually an idea that goes back to the dawn of the Republic. The United States was in fact the first country to, to, to uh, pass national <coughs> compulsory tax financed health insurance and they did it in 1798. Uh, for, for in an act for the for the relief of sick and disabled seamen, uh, the idea was that seamen coming into ports around the country, away from home and the standard of care at the time, would fall ill and become a burden on the local community, who would feel compelled to take care of them. And as Alexander Hamilton uh, argued, uh, um, you know, given that we were inevitably going to uh, fund them because you know the interests of society depend on it, they're a very needy and, and worthy class, you know, to protect them from misery, it makes sense to make the sailors uh, pay for that up front and then use the money to pay for their care. And so they had six, they had a tax, a payroll tax of six cents per sailor, per month at sea, handed over to the customs agent every time a ship arrived in port, and that money was then dispersed to fund uh, local hospitals to pay for the sailor's care when they inevitably became sick and couldn't pay for it themselves. And this idea that if fundamentally we're going to provide taxpayer dollars uh, to provide care when people are sufficiently ill and unable to uh, afford that care themselves is something that in modern times has been embraced across the political spectrum, uh, including, for example, Republican Governor Mitt Romney. This was his uh, major argument for mandatory health insurance in Massachusetts, which predated the Affordable Care Act. I was also uh, struck that um, Charles Murray at the Heritage, Institute, uh, Heritage Foundation, who argues for a universal basic income of $13,000 a year as a way of getting the government out of people's lives. Let's dismantle the entire bureaucratic welfare state, give everyone back their cash, and let them do with it what they want. Even he makes one and only one exception, and that's that he's gonna take $3,000 of that $13,000 back and use it for compulsory health insurance. Why? Because he recognizes that even if everyone has income and the potential means to, to buy health insurance, if they don't, and then they end up sick, uh, inevitably we're gonna step in with taxpayer-financed resources. So that's the basic argument. The only other thing which I won't go into detail on that we, we spend some time on in the book is saying that while it's important to be clear on the uh, function of health of government intervention health insurance, it's also important to be clear and, and humble about you know, what it is that health insurance won't accomplish. And we can talk about this more in the Q&A, but we argue that, somewhat ironically given its name, that health insurance is not actually the secret to promoting health or reducing health disparities. And for people who are concerned about issues of the poor population health in the United States or the huge disparities in health and in health across income and racial groups, the place to look is not to our health insurance policy, but to, to other potential policies, which, which we can talk about. So if you 
by the argument that the purpose of universal, uh, the purpose of health insurance policy is to make sure that everyone has access to essential medical care regardless of resources, then as Michael already said, the solution is extremely simple. We haven't yet been able to fit it on a bumper sticker, but we've got it onto a slide. Uh, universal coverage that's automatic, free, and basic. And then, uh, because our, our social contract is about a standard of adequacy, not about equality, um, we would then want people who can afford it and want more coverage to be able to supplement that in a well-functioning uh, market, which economists love to design, and we spend time on that in the book. But in the interest of time today, I just want to focus on those uh, three key elements that Michael highlighted, the automatic, free, and basic. I think the automatic point is the easiest. Uh, if, we're, if, we, if we want everyone to have uh, coverage, we need to make it automatic. We've already, as I said, enacted universal coverage. We just haven't achieved it. And so we need to do what we did with Medicare in 1965 for, physician and for physicians and hospitals, where it just was essentially automatic at 65 and everyone had it. Let me pause for a moment on free, because as a health economist, coming out and saying that anything in the, in the basic universal coverage should be free to the patient, no premiums, of course, because that would interfere with the automatic part, but also no co-pays, no deductibles, no cost sharing, that's about as close as professional, to professional heresy as you can come as a health economist, right? Uh, health economists, myself included, have argued for decades about the virtues of copays and deductibles in, in health insurance coverage. This actually goes back to a debate between uh, Nixon and Kennedy, the different Kennedy-Nixon debate. This was between Ted Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Uh, when in the early 1970s, both uh, the, the Democrats led by Kennedy and the Republicans led by the Nixon administration had competing proposals for universal coverage on the floor of the US Congress. And one of the key sticking points was whether or not to introduce co-pays or deductibles in that coverage, with the Nixon administration arguing that we need people to behave judiciously and the amount of medical care they get, they need to have some financial skin in the game. And Kennedy and the Democrats and the labor unions arguing this is ridiculous. People only get medical care if they need it. And if they need it, they get it regardless of the price. It's not like, oh, colonoscopies are on sale today. I think I'll go get one. Uh, and therefore, all you do with copays and deductibles is increase the risk that patients bear. You don't actually introduce reductions in healthcare spending. This prompted the uh, launch of the RAND health insurance experiment and decades of work after that that has made, some of which my co-author and I have done, many of which, much of which has been done by other people, all of which has made abundantly clear that Nixon was right, Kennedy was wrong. If you, if you have to pay something for your medical care, you use less of it. And this has prompted generations of economists to argue for cost sharing in health insurance so that people, as I said, have some financial skin in the game. I've made this argument myself. I've lectured generations of students on this, says Laurent. And in this book, we say unequivocally, we take it back. We recant, at least when this advice comes, as it often does, in the context of universal health insurance systems. And the reason we do is not because we were wrong about the facts. We stand by our research and that of many other economists, 
Nixon was right. When people have to pay something for their medical care, they use less medical care. But rather, because we've seen what has happened in countries around the world that have followed the advice of economists and in order to rein in healthcare spending, have added co-pays or deductibles into their universal basic coverage plans. And it's amazing what happens in country after country. They introduce the cost sharing with one hand and they introduce the exceptions and the exemptions with the other hand. Why? Because there are always going to be people who can't afford even a five euro or five pound copay. And if we have a, a, con a social contract that we, these people should be getting care, we're gonna have to introduce the exception. So for example, in the UK, which introduced uh, cost sharing for prescription drugs, they also introduced exemptions for people who are poor, for people who are old, for people who are young, for people with cancer, for people who are students, for veterans, the list goes on and on. At the end of the day, 90% of prescription drugs in the UK are dispensed to people who are exempted from the cost sharing. So all you've done is create a lot of administrative hassles for the state, also for the patients and their doctors, and you're not actually reducing healthcare use, not because copays aren't effective, but because they're not effective when they're not operable. And we've seen this in country after country. France, for example, which famously has quite high cost sharing in its universal system, 30 to 40% coinsurance for some types of procedures and tests. They also have taxpayer financed coverage of that cost sharing for low income individuals. And then they have tax subsidies and other regulations to try and encourage employers to offer uh, coverage for that cost sharing to employees, the end result being that 95% of people in France do not face this cost sharing. So we come out for free because that's where we're gonna inevitably end up and let's not create the patchwork mess that we currently have to get there. The last thing I wanna say about this plan is, you know, it's always fun to stand up and say universal and free, but we also have to be clear about the basic part. And we have a chapter in which there's you know, housing metaphor throughout the book and we say basic coverage is gonna be a shack, not a chateau. It's gonna, our social contract is about providing essential medical care, not a high-end experience. Uh, there are many countries around the world that do this, Singapore and Australia being two, where, you know, for example, the universal basic system can get you coverage uh, of hospital care and you'll recuperate in a ward with 10 beds and what in Singapore, a notoriously hot and humid climate, they refer to euphemistically as natural ventilation. If you buy the supplemental coverage, you get the same you know, surgeon and the same hospital care, but then you can recover in a private room with air conditioning, with a private bath and better food. Basic coverage would also be basic in terms of you know, ability to choose any doctor you want and wait times for non-urgent care. <coughs> it would be closer to what we currently have in Medicaid or in the coverage for the Veterans <coughs> Administration, which are longer than what we have in, in private health insurance. Uh, and that's why we estimate that about 70% of the population would purchase supplemental coverage. But again, if the, if the purpose of health insurance is to provide access to essential medical care, wait times that are longer than desirable but are still deemed reasonable for non-urgent care are acceptable. And we make the analogy in the book to the economy air travel that has taken over Europe. If any of you have had the fortune or misfortune to travel on one of those airlines, you know it's not a high-end experience. We'd all like more legroom, free Wi-Fi, unlimited unchecked bags. But if the social contract was to deliver people from by plane from point A to point B, they deliver on that. And for those who want more, they can upgrade 
to business class. The final thing I want to say uh, what, before turning it over uh, is something on budget. I should, I should have said at the beginning that Laurent and I just decided that our remit was to try and understand what an ideal system would look like freed from political constraints, but we certainly were going to hold ourselves to economic constraints. And of course, one of the you know, biggest concerns in US healthcare is the high rates of healthcare spending. Here's a quote from Vic Fuchs, um, who's known as the grandfather of health economics. He sadly passed away a couple months ago at age 99 as he was revising his textbook. May we all be so lucky. Um, and he notes that the US healthcare system is in crisis, pointing to the soaring costs. But he actually noted that in 1974, uh, when US healthcare was only 6% of GDP. So we've been in crisis for a long time. We're now at 18% of GDP. The sky's been falling for a long time. And we argue in the book that while this is a very important problem, it's not one we know how to solve, and it's not one we have to solve to achieve what we want to achieve on the coverage front for one very simple reason. We all know that the US spends twice as much as any other high-income country on healthcare as a share of the economy. But I think what's less appreciated is that in all these other high-income countries, essentially all of the healthcare spending is taxpayer-financed. So they're spending about 9% of GDP on taxpayer-financed healthcare. Well, in the US, half of healthcare spending is taxpayer-financed. So half of 18% is also 9%. So that's Medicare, Medicaid, the tax subsidy to employer-provided health insurance. In other words, we're already spending as much as other countries are spending on taxpayer-financed health care. So we're already spending what it costs to get universal basic coverage. We're just not getting it. And that's because we're choosing to spend that money differently on, for example, a Medicare system that is way more generous on many dimensions than basic coverage would be, and yet less generous on others because it has these high cost-sharing agreements and doesn't cover you know, most of the country. So let me stop there. We talk about the design of supplemental coverage in the book. Um, we end by briefly in the epilogue discussing the politics of how we could get to universal coverage. We don't have any magic uh, bullet or even any particular insights on this. The one thing I would really emphasize is I think this is the important place to end the discussion, not to begin the discussion. It doesn't make sense to me to talk about what we think is feasible today or might be feasible in the future, which I find always very hard to predict, without first having clarity on what the ideal is. So then we can either try and find policy windows to introduce it, or if we inevitably have to compromise, uh, we at least know what we're compromising because we know what the ideal is. So I will stop there and uh, turn it over to Michael and the rest of you. Thank you, Amy. Um, and uh, I want to uh, offer a note to our uh, interweb audience. Uh, because of technical incompetence, apparently I've been publishing your questions on the website <laughs> before they were ready and they've disappeared from my tablet here, but uh, our crack team of IT and social media folks are working on it so that we'll get your questions in front of me. And, uh, until that happens, I've got some questions uh, for Amy. Um, uh, for, first, just a couple of clarifying questions before s some more challenging questions. Uh, uh, would it be fair to say that under your proposal, everybody in the United States would be eligible for something like Medicaid for all? Very much so, with the, uh, it essentially is Medicaid for all, except for the fact that unlike in the current Medicaid program where 
you can't supplement Medicaid. If you want something that's a little um, more coverage than Medicaid, you have to give up your Medicaid coverage and repurchase what it would have covered. But otherwise, yes, we would allow you to supplement or top up, but yes, you can think of this as Medicaid for all with a supplement. Like they can do in Medicare. Exactly. Yes, okay. So Medicaid, just to clarify, Medicaid is the joint federal state health insurance program for ostensibly for low-income individuals, the Medicare program is for uh, a universal federal program for uh, uh, the elderly, uh, people with end-stage renal disease, and uh, the disabled. Um, and uh, about Medicare, uh, under your proposal, would Medicare become less comprehensive for enrollees? So it would be... As I said, we estimate that about 70% of people would buy supplemental coverage because the basic would be less than what they currently have in some dimensions. Uh, and that, so for those without insurance currently or for those on Medicaid currently, they would be unambiguously better off and not buy necessarily supplemental, uh, both because they have coverage and they don't have the risk of losing coverage and they can supplement if they want. For the 50% who have private health insurance, they'd be... Uh, Basic coverage would definitely be worse in the sense of being much more basic, less coverage, but it would be better in the sense that they wouldn't risk catastrophic out-of-pocket spending for anything covered by it that's considered essential, and they wouldn't risk losing it. And for, for the fifth of the population on Medicare, to your question, it, the coverage would, yes, be much less basic, but it wouldn't have this you know, unlimited, you have to pay one in every $5 of any physician bill out of pocket, so no risk of having tens of thousands of dollars of medical bills if you had a sufficiently expensive illness. But overall, government would spend less yes. on Medicare enrollees? Yes. Okay. Uh, and uh, in order to shift those resources to the uninsured and people with, uh, to provide the basic coverage for, for people everyone, with private right. insurance. Okay. Uh, and, and so per enrollee spending in Medicare would go down. Uh, what, about, um, what about physician prices? And these are just to sort of uh, 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 paint a picture. These questions I just wanted to uh, uh, convey just how uh, big a change this would be for uh, enrollees and, and healthcare providers. Uh, healthcare providers uh, in, who currently participate in the Medicare program, what would this proposal do to the prices that they receive for the services they provide to enrollees in the basic? So uh, we don't actually think that this necessarily would be very disruptive on the provider side. It could be if we chose to make it disruptive, but it doesn't have to be. And one reason is we, t we deliberately, and you can view this as a feature or a bug, we view it as a feature, <coughs> we deliberately take no stand on a lot of these de delivery questions of, you know, would the basic coverage be publicly provided or privately provided or a mix of both? Would it be single payer or multi-payer? How much would, uh, you know, physicians be paid? Because there are a lot of different ways that you can structure it, and if you look to countries around the world, you see many different viable models, everything from you know single public payer, public employees, as you have in the UK, and as we have in the Veterans Administration in the United States, to systems like the Netherlands or Switzerland, where you have competing private insurers providing the universal basic coverage. 
there are pros and cons to each of those systems. And again, either of them can deliver on the social contract. Plus, you have to remember that 70% of the population, so basically everyone currently on private insurance or Medicare, we estimate is going to buy supplemental coverage. And one of the things supplemental coverage does in many systems, we talk about Israel, Singapore, Australia in the book, is pay more to doctors to get you know, their choice of physician or to be able to jump the queue um, or to get you know, better accommodations. So it's not totally clear to me that there would have to be any major disruption in how the vast majority of uh, physicians practice and are paid. Okay, so now for uh, uh, my hopefully more challenging, Chris. Well, I wanted to first uh, praise the book uh, in a number of ways. First of all, uh, what I loved about it was uh, it's bold. It doesn't begin by asking what's politically feasible. I think more people should do that. It begins by asking what is right. Uh, and it really does swing for the fences as those qu questions tried to convey. This is a radical proposal. It would be very disruptive uh, for a lot of people. But I still think more health reformers should follow this approach. At least begin with what you think the ideal world should uh, an ideal world would look like. Uh, it would clarify health debates, probably make them less boring. Uh, and and even if an, uh, a proposal is politically infeasible, I think I still think it has value because uh, it does something that your more mealy-mouthed, politically feasible approaches cannot, they give us an opportunity to ask, okay, what are the political constraints that would prevent this from happening? And I think in that, uh, in that examination, there's education to be had about how the political system makes decisions and what different types of proposals are worth pursuing to, to, uh, through the political system and which ones are not. I, I also love that the book is unusually honest. For a book that... Uh, advocates a robust role for government in healthcare. It is unusually honest about how government operates in healthcare. It uh, it and and uh, about health insurance as well. Uh, you and uh, uh, Laurent make the point that it uh, will that health insurance will not eliminate health disparities. You're honest about past efforts to use government to fill in the cracks in the U.S. health sector, that, you, that there are gaps in Medicare coverage, there are gaps in the No Surprises Act, that EMTALA, which is a condition that Congress places on Medicare spending that says that emergency rooms have to screen and stabilize all patients regardless of ability to pay, that that law did not accomplish its goal. Uh, honest about the marginal benefits of, uh, of additional health insurance. I love the metaphor of Amy's hat. <laughs> Thank you, Amy's mom, for that one and uh, that we already have a public option in, uh, in the Medicare program and that Medicare is already a voucher program. Uh, I, I try to convince people of this all the time, and it's, and it's hard, and this is going to make it a lot easier. So thank you for that. And we were talking about this before. I love the blind end notes. I hope the Cato Institute will adopt those. Uh, now, uh, things that I... Uh, Can I just... So thank you for all of that. I just have one slight quibble. Sure. But it may be an important one. You said for a book that argues for a robust role for government, you're you know surprisingly candid and honest about lots of government failures. I'm not sure we are arguing for a robust role for government. Well, compared to my role for government, it's very robust. Well, but as I as I said, you know, again, this can be done um, through you know private private insurers competing over providing the basic plus the supplement. What's, what was amazing to me is, you know, I saw as we walked in, there's something named after Hayek out there. Even this entire ha auditorium. Okay, even Hayek, you know, who, who rails against the British National Health Service, corrupt, I mean, or inefficient, you know, 
government meddling, public employees, it's awful, you know. Even he says, but we should, of course, have universal health insurance, just not delivered that way. So you've got Charles Murray, you've got Frederick Hayek, you know, you've got a lot of pr famous proponents of liberal government, li sorry, of limited government, all of whom are agreeing with the point, or articulating before us, we're agreeing with them, the point that fundamentally as a society, since we step in with taxpayer-financed resources when people are ill, we might as well design this coherently. So how would you make that, la when you say you want less of a role for government, what do you have in mind? None of all those uh, libertarians or quasi-libertarians that you mentioned, none of them studied healthcare in any detail. Right, that's my role. And, yeah. <laughs> and mine, and okay. so, and so oh, I, I like being able to disagree with uh, uh, Hayek on occasion, uh, and I do have, he, he does come up in my questions. Okay, So, okay. Uh, uh, things that uh, I like less about the book is that there wasn't, and this is a very Hayekian point, there was no examination of prices. Uh, you just take the prices that exist in the U.S. health sector as given. Uh, it also doesn't examine or ask whether uh, the, what you call the empirical social contract, I'll have more to say about that in a moment, might be causing the problem that you're trying to solve, sick people being unable to afford the care that they need. Uh, it doesn't examine uh, what would prices be if, the, if social contract adherence had just left healthcare alone, or uh, how your proposal would determine or possibly distort prices. Similarly, no discussion of quality and the uh, empirical social contract's impact on on that and whether it might be contributing to those pro problems. Uh, the analogies, you only, you only touch on healthcare quality in passing, or the quality of health insurance even in passing. And the analogies uh, that you uh, use are, are not encouraging. You talk about uh, the ability to, to top up. Uh, uh, if you, everybody gets the basic automatic coverage that's kind of like Medicaid for all, but unlike Medicaid, they can top up by purchasing private insurance. You say, much like the government provides basic education, but people can Per, uh, purchase additional instruction or go to a private school, or government uh, provides uh, defense, defense counsel to, uh, uh, to all defendants, but if you want to per, uh, uh, pay, pay for your own uh, counsel, you can do that. Same with police protection, uh, you can purchase additional security services. I read those and I thought, my God, <laughs> each of those, each of those uh, areas where government gets in, involved in, um, uh, in providing what you might call a positive right to education, a civil right to, uh, to um, uh, defense counsel, or protecting fundamental rights when it comes to police protection, the quality of the government is providing in all of those cases is alarmingly poor. So uh, I, I would have liked to see more of an examination of how the uh, empirical social, or, or how the empirical social contract has already uh, uh, impacted the quality of healthcare, or how it might in the future. Um, let's see. Can I say something? Go ahead, because I'm jumping to the, to the first actual question. Okay. Now. Okay. Go ahead. So just so so first of all, I completely agree with your point that um, there are many examples where uh, the government. Uh, in providing uh, or guaranteeing services is doing a woefully inadequate job. And we gave those examples knowing that. I think the question is always relative to what? We're starting with a system in which, as I tried to detail at the beginning, you have people who don't have insurance, you have people who are cycling uh, through Medicaid programs and constantly losing coverage. 
relative to that, we're lifting up the bottom. Obviously, it would be great if you know that bottom could be even better. But I want to be. We tried. To, we wanted to be realistic. We didn't want to promise a panacea when we weren't going to be confident we could deliver one. We still think public education uh, is better than. Uh, not having uh, any education for the many people who would probably not have it if we didn't have publicly provided education. So that gets to your other point, which I just wanted to fly, which you kind of hinted at, which is, uh, and this is something I've thought about and worked on, which is maybe the problem is the government, right? The, if only the government weren't stepping in to provide, you know, backstop coverage uh, if you're sufficiently ill, people would buy health insurance, right? I don't think we have a ton of good evidence on that one way or another. It's a reasonable conjecture. It's also a reasonable conjecture that they wouldn't. But I think what's very clear, both in our history, uh, in, our, in, in a bunch of uh, work in psychology and social psychology, is that if somebody doesn't, we are going to step in. So just saying, oh, if we only get rid of government, everyone will buy health insurance, and then we don't have to like have this, you know, you know, sort of backstop solution, I think is, is unrealistic. And as I said, I think that's where Charles Murray was coming from when he said, I want to get the government out of people's lives, except for compulsory health insurance. Although I agree with you that he is not, he is not a health economist. Okay, so my next question slash challenge sort of touches on that. Uh, one argument for government subsidies for healthcare or universal government subsidies is that there could be or should be a social contract where the government and the citizenry enter a compact, everybody pays into some government program that guarantees health care for everyone, and the government makes that arrangement mandatory. So there are the usual objections into this sort of social contract theory or justification for government intervention. One is that, you know, if I don't have a right to refuse, it's not a contract. No one asked me to participate. You won't find my signature on any, con on any social contract. And if I didn't consent, it's not a contract. Uh, Hayek, I think, made the point, or I've been meaning to look up, I've heard, I, I want to confirm, I, I want to look this up, but it's almost too good to, to check, that he said that one of the best ways to bleed a word of its meaning, to invert its meaning, is to put the word social in front of it. Think, think contract, think security, think science. Uh, even if there should be, uh, uh, a, and even if there should be a social contract where everybody comes to the aid of the vulnerable, it doesn't follow that government is necessarily the best mechanism for for, uh, to fulfill that commitment. But uh, you and your co-author go further. You argue that not only uh, should there be a social contract, but there is a social contract whose existence and shape we can observe and validate empirically. And here I want to quote from the book. You say, there's an enduring but unwritten social norm that the U.S. has been trying to fulfill universal access to essential basic health care, regardless of a person's resources, the empirical social contract under which, like it or not, the U.S. operates, and that our country has always tried to provide essential medical care for those who are ill and un unable to provide for their own care. I noticed uh, at least two times in the book you say that uh, you use that word always. Public policy has always been pushing in that direction. And you cite there's lots of data consistent with that hypothesis. You had some of them in your uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation. The Medicare program itself, plus its expansion to the disabled, covered the disabled and people with end stage uh, kidney failure. Uh, Medicaid and its various expansions to children, uh, the Katie Beckett uh, uh, waiver that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, affected uh, to the infirm, to pregnant women, the medically needy, and most recently able-bodied childless adults, the Ryan White AIDS program, COVID program, and so forth. So the, the, uh, throughout your book, the, the empirical social contract is really sort of a motivating force. It's almost like 
an invisible hand that is guiding public policy to fill in the cracks in the health sector. Uh, and because you, you say the public policy is always moving toward that goal. But my question and challenge is, do the data actually support your hypothesis of an empirical social contract? Because, yes. because when uh, there are lots of instances where public policy does not try to provide essential medical care to those who are unable to provide for their own and instead does the opposite. And in many cases, government subsidies and regulation create the leaks and squeaks that the data you're citing is trying to, uh, trying to plug and, and trying to grease. Uh, so for example, government licensing of clinicians creates gaps in the health sector. It increases prices, it creates shortage of medical, shortages of medical services, blocks quality innovations. Uh, the uh, government regulation of health insurance creates gaps by prioritizing health insurance out of reach of millions. Uh, we, we've had a, already a discussion about the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance, which to my mind is the most harmful thing the government does in healthcare. It increases, creates gaps by increasing prices, making, uh, uh, leading people to purchase excessive coverage and insecure coverage that disappears when they lose jobs, when they retire. Uh, the FDA creates gaps by increasing drug prices, suppressing the creation of beneficial drugs. Uh, President Obama and President Biden have literally proposed, and President Obama did do this, throwing sick people out of their health insurance. Um, and and e so even within the data that you support, in, uh, that you cite in support of the empirical social contract hypothesis, we can see public policy creating gaps in the health sector. Medicare and Medicaid, through various mechanisms, increase prices for private health insurance and private uh, medical care. Uh, Congress, you know, effectively repealed Obamacare's individual mandate, which undermined th that theoretical social contract. States. Uh, frequently cut people and services from their Medicaid programs. States are currently dropping millions of people from the Medicaid program. So, and, and even many of the examples of gaps in the U.S. health sector that you cite in the book are gaps that public policy created, and not just government you know, dropping people, uh, but people losing their health insurance because the government compelled them to enroll in an employer-sponsored plan. So, uh, where, so these are examples, I think, where government is not and public policy are not trying to prevent people from dying in the streets, but are actually causing people to die in the streets because they cannot afford uh, medical care. Use another metaphor, which is, I, I think you used it in your presentation too, that it's like whack-a-mole. <laughs> that it's like, that like public policy is like whack-a-mole, we see these problems coming up, and the government is trying to solve them by whacking down all of these moles that just keep on popping up. But uh, it seems that also, at the same time the government is doing that, it's also running a mole breeding program. So there are more and more moles popping up all over the place. So my question is, after that long, long prelude, is it fair to say then that when your book argues that we can empirically observe that there is a social contract in the United States, that the United States has always tried to pursue, that it's only looking at data that confirm that hypothesis and not looking at the other side of the ledger? So I think this is a really important point in the sense of, as I tried to convey in my talk, if you don't buy that we have been trying to do this, then I think all of the argument for what we're, what the solution is, you know, is on much shakier or no ground. So it's, it's, it's very good for you to highlight this. I guess I want to say two things. First, we try, and I believe in other parts of the book that maybe you didn't quote from, we make it very clear that we say this is the empirical social contract we have been trying but, but failing uh, to, to uh, honor. So I don't think it is fair 
to say, you know, look at all these ways the government policy has screwed up, therefore there can't have been some underlying motivation if it was screwing up that, that particular, you know, goal. Just because policy doesn't achieve its ends doesn't mean it wasn't trying uh, or that it wasn't doing other things with a different part of its, you know, uh, bureaucracy that was, you know, undermining it because the one hand wasn't thinking about what the other hand was doing. Um, that being said, I do think you are very right. It is, it is, it is a challenging thing to argue that we need reform to fulfill a social contract that we haven't fulfilled. Well, then, how do you know we have it? Is a fair point, right? And you know, we spend a lot of time in the book, I guess, not only on the policy history that I went over very briefly, um, and not only on the current state of policy where, as I said, much to my surprise, so much of the, 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 the uninsured get a lot of medical care and that ends up being taxpayer financed. Uh, but we also talk a lot about um, the psychology, the sort of universal psychology behind this and how it has uh, affected other aspects of our public policy. We draw on the work of uh, Michelle Dauber, who's a legal uh, scholar and a sociologist who talks about uh, the history of federal disaster relief in the United States, which to me was shockingly parallel to our healthcare policy. It also dates back to the dawn of the Republic. It also has what she refers to as this disaster narrative where we can't help but send, you know, FEMA in and with, with you know, the governor in a hard hat when anyone has, when, when, when a, you know, hurricane has devastated, you know, New Orleans, but, you know, somehow uh, then we fail to actually uh, do anything to try and prevent that from happening again or, or dealing with the underlying chronic conditions. So at some deep level, you have to be right in the sense of we're arguing that we haven't fulfilled the contract, so we can't point to its dispositive evidence that it exists because it, currently we haven't fulfilled it. We think that if you look, if you think about human nature and human psychology, and we talk about this in the book, and if you think about this, his, all of these public policies, there does seem to be that contract. But if you actually believe that there's a parallel universe in which a modern US society could you know, tie its hands and just say, sorry, we gave you that basic income, you didn't buy health insurance, nothing for you. I, I don't think at some deep level I can, you know, that's a counterfactual world that we haven't seen. But I, I'm surprised because that's, of, of the many criticisms we've gotten of the book, uh, I guess I had to come here to hear that one. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you're here. So, uh, and but speaking of, of, of psychology and uh, the the mechanism by which we try to effectuate this hypothesized uh, social contract, um, you do have, as I mentioned, a lot of data that you cite in the book. Uh, data points that show that policymakers do try to fill in gaps in the health sector, do try to provide health care to people who are um, uh, who are in desperate need of health care but unable to afford it. Katie Beckett, Ryan White, so forth. Uh, and the political system does respond when, you know, your, uh, when all of the, uh, uh, when all the, when everything falls into place, when you have, uh, uh, you know, a, a sympathetic uh, individual or group uh, with with some political cachet, maybe your childhood friend is a U.S. senator, and you want to, uh, and that helps to get a government program expanded. It helps to uh, uh, get government subsidies for that particular need. The political system does not seem so good at uh, at identify or 
identifying and solving problems that affect large numbers of people where there aren't uh, where the stars don't align. So we've had this discussion before, and I think it's pretty fair to say that most health economists agree that the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance has been very harmful. Uh, and one of the reasons that it's been harmful, I've mentioned a couple of them, it increases prices, uh, it, it, uh, it uh, encourages, and that's prices for medical care and health insurance, so it makes it harder for people to afford medical care, and then sometimes they just lose insurance entirely because they lose their job or their employer uh, uh, drops coverage or they retire. Um, and even though there's near unanimity among economists that this has been harmful and that we should, and that Congress should change the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance because it's causing all of these moles to pop up, Congress does not do that. Instead, the political system just tries to knock out those moles. Uh, it seems to be better at responding to uh, discrete issues uh, where additional resources could do some good, but ignoring uh, much larger problems that uh, uh, that the government itself has created, what, is, what does it say about the wisdom of using government or the political system in order to try to uh, fill in the cracks of the health sector? Uh, when it sh shows this obvious bias for ignoring, uh, for focusing on small problems where uh, where the, the, the right number of factors just happen to align in order to spur uh, government to action and ignoring much bigger problems that actually give rise to all of those smaller things. Is there a, is there, are there uh, psychological biases or institutional biases at work there that just make this a poor tool for I mean, addressing these problems or, or effectuating a social contract? I mean, there's, there's two versions of that. One is, you know, it's well known, you know, basic political science that, you know, there, there's an incentive to pass, uh, you know, programs that have an identified narrow group of beneficiaries who can, you know, say, look, now I have this coverage and diffuse the cost to everyone else. So that's a well-known problem in political science. I, I'm not sure that that, and, and U, the U.S., I think, compared to most countries, has historically been more incremental and less radical in its policy. That's not to say we never have radical policies. I would say the, you know, the introduction of Social Security, the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid would be two counterexamples. But there's two different versions of your question. One, which is how could we ever get this politically when we tend to do the incremental? Uh, I guess my answer would be, um, well, that's why one of the reasons we're writing the book, to try and change the conversation. But the other version of your question is well, just government, you know, if I, if I read between the lines, government like never gets anything right, why would we expect them to get this right? And I guess, you know, there my response would be, I'm not sure what the alternative is if you agree that in fundamentally we have this social contract. Now maybe you don't. Maybe you think that we could, you know, get rid of government intervention and health insurance and not feel as taxpayers compelled to act when there are people who are you know, sick and poor and unable to afford medical care. Part of the reasons for the examples in the book, including the merchant marine in the 18th century, including the people dying of end-stage renal disease, was to try to show that I think we think that actually we can't do that, that we won't stand idly by. Um, if you agree with that, what is the solution if not to have government-mandated ma universal coverage? So I wasn't going to do this, okay. but uh, as it turns out, yeah, I, ha I have a book out too. 
that answers that question. Great. I wasn't going to plug my own book at your event, but I have a book out that answers that question, and the, uh, the, the response is that, of course, perfection is not an option because we're humans, and human institutions are never perfect. Uh, but we can strive toward perfection uh, by trying to fill in the gaps in the health sector so that fewer and fewer people fall through over time. And the way, the way that that happens is with quality improving and cost-saving innovations that where we've market forces uh, have been given room to breathe in the U.S. health sector, we've seen market forces generate. And that that, that process, that system, will drive down prices so that more people can afford medical care, fewer people fall through the cracks that way, while improving quality. So that, uh, even if some people still cannot afford medical care on their own, it is far easier for everyone to, uh, for, for that number of people uh, who cannot afford the medical care they need on their own is much, much smaller, and the rest of us have an easier time providing it for them because we're wealthier. We're not spending that, as much on health care. That's healthcare. great. I think I agree with you. Let me just, let me just be clear. So you, you, do, you do agree that if there are some people, even in this much perfected, much more efficient, lower cost, higher quality system, there are some people who still can't afford health insurance mm -hmm. or misguidedly choose not to buy it, um, that the, there will be some taxpayer-financed care for them. Not necessarily taxpayer-financed. If we could get to a world where the government was not doing all of the things it's currently doing to increase prices, to reduce quality, make health insurance insecure, all those moles popping up, all the mole breeding program, if we could get rid of the mole breeding program. And then uh, we saw that there were still, you know, uh, there are fewer people falling through the cracks, but still some people. Uh, I would be happy to have a debate over whether taxpayer financing of meeting their medical needs would, on balance, improve things or make things worse. Uh, I think that that government program would be much smaller than what we have, than any government program we see right now. Uh, it would be an open question as to whether it would be at the state, uh, at the federal level, the state level, or even the local level, or whether introducing those government programs would uh, have unintended consequences that would not leave people better off on net. It would crowd out private charitable effort. It would lead to uh, 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 lobbying uh, to affect the parameters of that program or its effect on uh, the private market that would actually cause the gaps in the health sector to widen. So. Uh, I think the, I would be happy to have that uh, debate, but I, I think there's an impulse behind it that says, okay, so if we did that, then we could fill in all the gaps. I think that is still the pursuit of a, a nirvana that's just not going to exist when what we should be aiming toward is a system that automatically fills in those gaps so that fewer and fewer people fall. I mean, let me completely agree but with But now you. we're talking about what I think and no, not no, what you but, think. No, but it's, it's related, okay. and I'm happy to talk about it in the sense of taking a step back, there are two huge problems with the current US healthcare sector. The one that we're talking about in our book, which is the lack of uh, real insurance, health insurance coverage that's supposed to be functioning as actual you know, economic protection. And that's why we don't emphasize just people who lack health insurance at a moment, but the risk of losing your coverage, the risk of having to pay large amounts out of pocket, even if you maintain your coverage. But the second elephant in the room is the fact that we spend so much on healthcare and much of it is poor quality. And most policies, you know, if you look at sort of the, the Clinton era push for healthcare reform or the Obama era push, they link those two together. Um, we deliberately separated them. Uh, 
A, because we, as we explained, and I just explained, we think they are separable, but there is no question, I completely agree with you, if we can get healthcare, if we can deliver the same quality at lower costs, or better yet, better quality at lower costs, not only is that just better in and of itself, but it certainly makes any coverage problem easier. I'm not, I didn't have the same confidence in the clarity and of the solution on insurance coverage than you seem to have on on the health, how to fix healthcare delivery. But if there's a solution to that, you know, sign me up because that certainly makes the, I agree with you completely, that certainly makes the coverage problem easier. Okay, I'm, I'm triaging my questions now because I have so many, but we're running out of time and I want to oh, get sorry. to audience questions. Uh, and you teed up one of them, which is the book doesn't address cost containment either. I mean, Correct. Uh, uh, it, it, or how to, uh, either how to reduce prices or to eliminate unnecessary medical spending says there isn't good evidence on what works. Uh, my question for you is, isn't there? Because if you look at the Rand Health Insurance Experiment, the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, and the Dartmouth Atlas, don't they all show that uh, there is good evidence on what works? Uh, Rand shows that cost sharing, at least for the non-poor, uh, reduces unnecessary medical spending without impacting health. For the average in uh, for for the average patient, Oregon shows that actually not expanding Medicaid, at least to uh, not to childless able-bodied adults, doesn't have much impact on the physical health, uh, no discernible impact on the f physical health outcomes of the enrolled. And Dartmouth shows that limiting spending in high spending parts of the country would have no impact on uh, on their health or their satisfaction with the care they're receiving. Um, so, isn't there evidence there? Uh, from those three, I think, reliable bodies of evidence. So all of the, I mean, what you gave was a not unfair summary of, of those three bodies of evidence, but I think it's incomplete. I think the there's an enormous amount of evidence, some only some of which we talk about in the book, because my co-author kept saying, let's focus on what we are doing and what not on what we're not doing, um, which is that take cost sharing, for example, that you know, there's what we increasingly see is that if you introduce cost sharing or you introduce managed care on the supply side, yes, that cuts back on you know care that's considered wasteful, but it's kind of a blunt instrument. It also cuts back on care that is um, that is uh, that is considered valuable and essential. In other words, we don't really have the tools to know how to like you know design either demand side or supply side policies to. to you know, uh, make sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I guess on specifically on what you said, I think in both RAND and the Oregon experiment, and the Oregon experiment I obviously know better since I ran it, I think the measures of health are, are quite limited. So we don't, we, we didn't find any dispositive evidence, but we don't, I don't think it's, there's a lot of other evidence that shows that when you introduce cost sharing, you people cut back on what is generally considered, and maybe they're wrong, high value care as well as low value care. And on the Dartmouth work, which I've also done some work on, yes, I actually became convinced through uh, additional work that I and others have done that it looks like um, you know there's a lot of uh, spending that could be cut back. I don't, again, I don't think we know how. We don't know what we would have to do to make high spending Minneapolis, which is spending twice as much on the same Medicare enrollee as Miami and not producing any better outcomes. We don't know how, which half to cut, right? It's like that old saying in advertising, we know half of all advertising expenditures are waste, we just don't know which half, right? I don't think if you made me king of the world or I would venture you as well, you would know what to do in Minneapolis to make them look like Miami. But I want I'm to push sorry, back. the other way around. Miami <laughs> I want to push back, though, on what you, 
how you describe the Rand Health Insurance experiment and its results, because I think this is a common misinterpretation and misrepresentation of the results of that study. What it found was that, yes, uh, enrollees cut back uh, on all types of health care, uh, high value and low value care. And they, it appears, it appears in the data that they were not very discerning. And yet, even though the, uh, the researchers found that they cut back on high value care, that they could find no evidence that that would harm their health, and, it, and uh, the lead researcher for the Rand Health Insurance Experiment, Joe Newhouse, and his colleagues said this wasn't just because, uh, or we don't think this is just because uh, uh, there's, there was no high value care. There was high value care there, but we believe that when they cut back on all medical care, they were cutting back not just on stuff that does nothing, and not just on high value care, but also on harmful care that left them worse off, and that's where the net zero result came from. We don't know how much high value care they cut back on, but to the extent they did, it was completely offset by cutting back on low value care. So, so that to me suggests that if you have cost sharing, like they had in the Rand Health Insurance experiment, that doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is the metaphor you use in the book, the baby's fine. The baby ends up fine. What you're throwing out is, yes, a lot of low-value care, and yes, some high-value care, but you're throwing out so much uh, 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 dangerous, harmful care that the baby is fine. So, yeah, so if you could say, comment on let that. Let me say two things. So one, um, as, we, as I was trying to argue in the book, is that if you, know, you believe we've convinced you of this social contract and or you look at the examples of other countries, uh, we just think that in the basic coverage, cost sharing is impractical. It always gets exempted. In the supplemental system for anything that's not considered essential, we're all for the market and the customer deciding what kind of cost sharing they want. Separately, on the specific point of the Rand Health Insurance Experiment, the reading you're giving is the reading I think that the uh, investigators gave to it and that you know I think I also had and taught for years. I think that's been that's been undermined recently by the growing realization and it's a general problem for health economics that um, we have fairly low sensitivity measures of health. I mean the, the best one we have is mortality and fortunately prime age people have very low mortality and that also let's be clear the Rand health insurance experiment included 2,000 families. If you've seen like the recent uh, experiment that Golden et al. did in the IRS with, you know, uh, four million, uh, you know, people and encouraging them to get some of them to get health insurance. Then they detect mortality reductions from health insurance. I'm not here to argue that therefore, you know, health insurance is the elixir of life. In fact, as you said, we argue in the book that relative to the, you know, vast problems in, of, of the population health that exists, health insurance has a relatively limited role to play, but I think the argument that there are no uh, adverse health consequences of lack of insurance or high cost sharing has not quite stood the test of time when we've expanded to uh, much, much larger samples that could actually pick up, you know, what are small but real effects. Though, to be fair, that uh, the uh, IRS study was um, health insurance versus no health insurance, Correct. whereas RAND and it's fair, cost yep, sharing. Yep. Okay. Um, and I have more to say about that, but uh, one last question of mine. Uh, the book criticizes the idea of the deserving versus the undeserving poor. This is a theme that co has come up in welfare policy uh, over the decades. Now, when your proposal draws uh, 
an inevitably subjective line between what is basic care that the, the universal automatic program will cover, and the government, so the government will subsidize, and what is non-basic care, which the government won't subsidize, aren't you just substituting your definitions of deserving and undeserving for other people's? So if the, if the cutoff for basic coverage is uh, that we're, the government is not going to pay for your medical care if it, it's going to cost more than $20,000 to keep you alive for a year, uh, isn't that the same as saying that if it costs $30,000 to keep your mother or your child alive for a year, that they are undeserving? So I think what we say is, you know, we have to make a decision as a society of how much taxpayer resources we want to spend on basic coverage. We could do it without raising prices, uh, so excuse me, without raising taxes, and then it would be fairly basic, or we could raise taxes and make it more comprehensive. That is a social or political question. I think another way of saying your comment is, you know, when people talk about the language of rights, you know, that healthcare is a right, everyone deserves it. I don't think rights come without any uh, notion of budget or limits, and we have to decide as a society what those are. We have obligations, but they aren't limitless, and that's what the policy and political process is supposed to help us determine. In fact, one of the things we push for in the book is that the basic coverage have a budget, which kind of sounds obvious, like what doesn't have a budget? Well, the US healthcare system doesn't have a budget. When we talk about the Medicare budget, we don't mean a budget constraint, as in how much can be spent this year. It, it's either how much was spent last year or how much we're guessing is gonna be spent next year. And yes, I think you know, policy involves hard choices. I'm not sure we have to cloak it in the moral words of dessert, but there is going to be a limit to what's in basic coverage unless we want taxpayer finance basic coverage to creep up to 50% of GDP, which perhaps we will decide as a society, but. I had a question about that too. I'm gonna defer it. Sir, All right. if you could state your name and affiliation, and um, please state your question in the form of a question. Um, Carl Polzer, I'm a longtime health policy analyst, and now I work on issues having to do with low-income workers, Center on Capital and Social Equity. So I'm gonna start with a comment. I think both of your proposals are very compatible. In fact, I think, I agree with Michael, we should get rid of the employer uh, exclusion. As do I. But that would lead to her proposal, wouldn't it? In that if you, the whole, we depend on the employer system to cover 150 million people, that unravels, and you got tens of millions of un, uninsured people, and you, you, know, you can't make the states do it now, the Supreme Court says, after Obamacare, so the federal government would have to step in. So either you're gonna have dysfunctional healthcare markets in the states, or, or, or uh, exchange pick it up, so, th so what, that might be actually, your proposal, Michael, might be the trigger to make her proposal politically feasible. And the second, thing, the, the second thing that I, uh, just a different, I'm imagining, you know, Chip Kahn and all these guys that run all the healthcare lobbies behind you. The head of the hospital lobby. Yeah, I mean, um, those guys, the second social contract that we have is they can make just about as much money as they want in healthcare. And that's, that's, and that's what Congress listens to. That's who, they pay for that. And so I question. just wanted to, those are two, two points. So I'm sorry I went on too long. Okay, thank you. Uh, anyone else in the studio audience? Crit. Hi, um, my name's Crit. I work here at Cato, and I guess Michael already said my name. Uh, so the analogies you gave for what would be compatible or like comparable to the healthcare system you 
proposed were police and schooling. And I thought, <laughs> guess who provides police and schooling? It's not the federal government, it's the state governments. So how would your proposal deal with the federal structure of these United States? That's a great question. Um, I, I think I have no view on the important contentious issue of federal versus state when it comes to healthcare. Uh, as we talk about at the very end, you could imagine a state doing this. Uh, often states have been the laboratories of democracy that have prompted action at the federal level. If you have the view that we shouldn't have a federal government at all and it should all be the state government, you know, in a world in which we didn't, that's what it was, this could be done all at the state level. I don't have a strong view. You know, to the extent I think it's a social contract that applies in all states, I'd like to see it implemented in all states, but whether that's done without any role for the federal government uh, or entirely with a role for the federal government is, I think, a separable question, and we have no particular view on that. If, if there's a state that's ready to try to implement this, we're here to try to help. Question from the audience watching at home. For most people, other goods and services, housing, food, utilities, etc., are more important than healthcare. But many people have less access to these than we might like. Should we then have mandatory minimum insurance for other things too? If not, what makes healthcare special? That is a terrific question. It's something we struggled with a lot in the book, right? Uh, there, you know, as I alluded to, you know, if you say we have a social contract to you know, provide access to medical care regardless of resources, well, what about food? What about housing, et cetera? Um, I think there's several answers. The first is uh, whether or not you think those are also good ideas, uh, we believe you clearly, you're going to have to have some form of this universal coverage. And again, I gave the example of uh, proponents of a universal basic income who say that's you know, neither necessary nor sufficient for solving the healthcare problem because even if people have enough income, if they choose not to buy health insurance, we're gonna feel compelled uh, to uh, to step in with taxpayer resources. So at some level, you know, I, this is something I struggled with a lot. Like, why are we writing a book about uh, healthcare policy and not only, not also, or only, you know, housing, food, et cetera, policy? And as I said, I think the one doesn't preclude the other, but it also uh, doesn't solve the problems of the other. The other thing I'll say, which you can take for about as much as it's worth, um, is, if you look to the philosophers, as we did in writing this book, they articulate the idea that uh, education and health, what's special about health, they would say education and health are special compared to housing, food, et cetera, because those are essential for uh, equality of opportunity to you know, sort of uh, have the possibility of achieving your, your full potential as a human being. So that's the philosophical argument that's been made that I'm just... Uh, repeating. I think to me the, the key argument is if you want to also solve problems of uh, housing insecurity and, and uh, inadequate nutrition, that's terrific. But even if people have enough income for all that, that's not going to also solve the healthcare problem. So it's special because we have revealed that we step in in a way that we don't always uh, when people are hungry or, or ill-housed. All things else equal. Do A, making health insurance compulsory or relatively more compulsory, so more people are insured, and B, making more treatments and drugs covered by law so the insurance is more comprehensive slash generous, necessarily increase general health spending? Holding everything equal, increasing health insurance, 
increases healthcare spending and increasing what's covered by health insurance, I would suspect would also increase healthcare spending. Yes. Okay, uh, and this is one of my questions. Let's uh, say that your proposal did lead to an increase in healthcare spending, so to consume more of US GDP. It's, health spending is currently at 18%. What if your proposal caused it to go to 20, 30% of GDP? Is there a point at which you would say, if, if I could show you that it would hit that level, the health spending would hit that level of GDP, that you would say, nope, my proposal is not worth it anymore? So let me say two things. First, as you yourself pointed out, it's not at all obvious that our proposal is going to increase health insurance, uh, healthcare spending, because it's not necessarily, you know, you talked about we're going to have a dramatic reduction in the generosity of Medicare. Um, for the uninsured, as we pointed out, they're already getting 80% of their care actually insured. So it's more about making it sensible and efficient than necessarily increasing it. Second, in terms of at what level is it? Is there too much spending on health care? I think, you know, as that quote I put up from Vic Fuchs in 1974 indicated, people have been saying the level of the share of the economy being spent on health care is unsustainable, you know, for half a century, when it was at 6%, when it was at 12%, you know, now it's at 18%. Uh, to me, the, the, the key question, and I think you'll agree, is to the extent, if you can get the employer provided, the employer tax subsidy out of this, and this is people purchasing health insurance, or in my case, supplemental health insurance, with their own money, not taxpayer finance, then I don't care. We don't worry about what the share of the economy being spent on, you know, flat screen TVs are, right? So I think the key is not what is the share of the economy being spent on health care, but what is the share of the economy being spent on taxpayer-financed health care? I, I share your healthy disregard for, for the overall spending level on health care. I think what matters is what we're getting for that money. Uh, but there's, uh, th there is a concern that in order to get uh, your proposal over the finish line, Congress might have to buy off certain corners of the oh, well, health now sector. You're, like now you're getting into politics. Into politics, right, right, right. So, so well, which tees might. up the next question from the from the home audience, Okay. which is that your book, like many other reform advocates, argues we should tear everything down and start over. When in our history have we done something like that, absent a natural disaster or, or war or, or, or something similar? Doesn't that fact explain why Clinton care never passed, but Obamacare did? And I would add to that uh, that when Obamacare reduced the future growth of government spending, the only way that Congress was able to do that was by promising the health sector $2 in new spending for every $1 it was in spending it was reducing. So, you know, first of all, uh, I'm, you know, if you take seriously the view that we never have radical policy unless, you know, there's a war or a, some other type of crisis, Okay, then you know we can wait for that day to come. I, I refuse. I refuse to uh, buy into the notion that we can forecast exactly what will be politically feasible when. When we were uh, pitching this book to publishers in January 2021, we had several tell us that we had to write the book quickly if they were going to publish it because you know uh, uh, Biden was going to enact uh, Medicare for all within the first hundred days. So like what people think is on the table politically and not, I think changes a lot over time. Our goal was not to 
you know, try and figure out how to accomplish something now, but to put out what we think is the ideal so that, you know, as we say in the book, to quote Milton Friedman, so that when the impossible becomes the inevitable, there are, you know, what we think are sensible plans around to guide when there is a radical policy window. Um, I've received several questions along these lines. This one is from Matthew Mon. Uh, who defines basic? How is it defined? What if there's a $3 million life-saving therapy that suddenly becomes available? At what point does that become basic? That is a great question. We have a whole chapter on that in the book. But the short answer is we would do what every other country does, a high-income country, which is first, as I said, you have to have a budget because we can't even talk about what's included in basic if we don't have a budget. That's not what the current Medicare system does. By law, Medicare is not allowed to cover costs in deciding what to cover. Uh, that would not be our approach. Our approach would be like every other country, which is you have a budget. If we don't think that budget is high enough, we can vote to raise it. But then you have to make hard decisions within that budget. And the answer to what happens if there's a $3 million life-saving technology, you can see what happens in basically every other country. There's a two-step process. The first is a technocratic one at which you know um, economists and physicians weigh in on the cost effectiveness of different technologies. And the second stage is some kind of more stakeholder or political process in which those technocratic estimates are inputs, but also you know, visceral feelings of what is essential as well as politics comes into play. Even in the UK, which is adheres the most closely to the pure cost-effectiveness analysis, they've set a higher willingness to pay for end-stage cancer drugs than for other things. So those are decisions that have to be made. They can't be made if we don't have a process and a budget, which we currently don't have. So Medicare is nuts and spends too much money. Okay. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we've reached agreement. I think I'm going to have to bring the whole uh, discussion here to a close because we're out of time. I want to thank Professor Finkelstein and her co-author, Laranov, uh, for this book, for participating in this, this forum, coming all the way to the Cato Institute to do it. Uh, I want to thank everyone here uh, for coming to the Cato Institute as well, as well as our home audience for joining us. Uh, if you're here with us in our studio audience, uh, we are, you can join us upstairs for lunch in the conference center. Uh, and with that, thank you, Professor. Thank you very much. Bye -bye.